Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Good morning. Our scripture comes from the second epistle of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 4, verses 6 to 12. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. This is the word of the Lord. As we head into Thanksgiving, I thought it'd be good to talk about gratitude. As we are between two different series, as we're preparing for Advent, we have this Sunday where we had nothing scheduled. I thought, you know what, let's talk about gratitude. And I did a a bit of a search for all the different passages that people usually talk about when they talk about gratitude. And I came to this one. This is Philippians 4, 6. It says this, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, dun, 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 with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Now, a confession for me, uh, I have had a difficult relationship with this verse, and even reading it and processing it today, I, it made me pause and wonder why is this relationship with this verse a little bit complicated? Because the way in which this verse has been used in my life has not always been life-giving. Because what is, the, what is this commanding us to do? Stop being anxious. Quit it. But instead, pray and be thankful. Now, there's some Christian circles where this is something that we have internalized. Stop being anxious and just be thankful. It reminds me of an old uh, sketch in which... Comedian Bob Newhart, uh, he played a therapist. Do can you guys actually want to watch it together? Can we watch a little bit of it? Can we do that on a Sunday? Okay, so we're going to watch a little bit, a little snippet of this sketch. Uh, it's very old, meaning it's also very pixelated. The premise is that this woman is coming to see a new therapist for the very first time who has an unprecedented approach to therapy. She has this recurring fear about being buried alive. And he says, don't worry, I can solve this problem. We won't need more than five minutes, and you will see why. Let's see. Yeah, we don't go there. Just stop it, you know? You know, I feel like too often with with anxiety that we have given for people dealing with sorrow, suffering, with, with anxiety in their life, and our solution is just stop it. Just stop it. And for all the things that are deeper within us, we have maybe as a community have said, no, 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 we don't go there. Just stop it. And the interesting thing is that um, 
this is really, really hard for us because there is a lot of anxiety in this world. You know, there's global warming, there's the recession, there's gun violence, and our response is stop it, right? There is a war in Ukraine, there's fractured relationships that even Thanksgiving brings up again and again. There's overdosing within teens, and our response is often stop it. We have a neighbor, a really good friend, who just got into CrossFit and really, really is excited about it, wants to talk to you about it. And Cobra Kai just got renewed for a new season. I don't know why. This broken world, and we just stop it, you know, just stop it. To simply deny our anxiety seems to be a really, really bad remedy for being human. And the sad truth is there might not be any greater culprit for perpetuating this than Christians, for spaces where we should be able to have the freedom to bring our full selves into God's presence and into a community. Instead, we subtly pressure people to stop having anxiety. That's not what what Christians, what real Christians experience. Depression and sorrow is not, not, these are not fruits of the Spirit, right? And so we subtly pressure people to stop having anxiety, and we also pressure them to be joyful, joyful in every season. And what, just think about, I don't have to, this is not a thought experience, we probably have experienced this, is what happens when we live within that framework where anxiety and sorrow and depression aren't, we're not given permission for that, and instead we are told to be joyful and happy well, we learn after that from to fake it. And even though we are never really told that from, you know, up front or something like that, that's the message we get is we have to fake it until we feel it. Fake it until we feel joy, until we, until we see and remember all the gifts that God has given us. And that is really, really true. But the problem is that we, the solution to our anxiety is not putting on a better face. It's not about projecting happiness and joy and hashtagging blessed into our life. <laughs> the solution is actually something else. Today, I'd, lock, I'd like to talk about gratitude because we are in the season of Thanksgiving. I'd like to talk about it, but I want to do it. I want to talk about Practicing gratitude in an anxious world. So I want to go all the way back to the Old Testament, Numbers 21. This is a really obscure passage that I have grown to love. To set up this story, Numbers 21, God has delivered God's people from being enslaved in Egypt, and they are they were promised a new home, a promised land flowing with milk and honey that would be their place, and God would establish them for the rest of the world to see if this is what it's like to be in relationship with God. But between the promised land and slavery, there is the desert, the wilderness that the people had to go through. And in the wilderness, this place of scarcity and vulnerability, they had to learn the difficult lesson to trust God. And we have found as being human, it's hard to trust God. And so along the way, like an uh, annoying child in the backseat of a car, they began to ask, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? They grew tired of the provision that God was giving them, and they began to complain. They began to complain about the desert, about the manna, about the need to follow God. And they actually, the bizarre things, they began to look back at Egypt and go, was it that much worse? right? And then they began to complain to Moses about their experience. And they said to Moses, 
Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread. There is no water. And we detest this miserable food. <laughs> Rather than remembering their condition enslaved in Egypt, they were, where they were forced to work, uh, where, they, where they weren't given what they were need, needing, and they didn't, hadn't yet experienced the provision of God, they were the opposite of grateful. Like they would look back and they were the opposite of grateful. They were actually resentful for what God had done. And so what takes place? Verse six, then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. So <clears throat> I don't have time to unpack this conundrum. Uh, God sending snakes to kill people seems to be a loaded idea. So let's just acknowledge it. And moving right along, verse 7, the people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke. They, they changed their mind. Something about seeing people being killed by snakes will do this. They said to Moses, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. And so Moses prayed for the people and God relented there. So God uh, God changed God's mind, relented, wanted to stop the suffering. But interestingly, God's idea of how to bring healing, it's kind of comical to me. It's a little bit odd. This is what takes place. Verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole, and anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Kind of cruel, right? The very thing that was traumatizing this community, that was bringing about so much death and suffering, God was like, if you want to find healing, take a look at that. You know, the very source of their anxiety and their pain, to make a statue of a snake, and they were healed by looking at it. It's pretty bizarre. But what's interesting to me is that has become like a picture that is like a surprising step for the necessity of our own healing. Our healing is not discovered by denying our pain or fast-forwarding through it or denying our sorrow. Uh, healing is often found when we are willing to look at the source of our pain, our wounds, and our tragedy. When we're able to look at it, we actually find healing. And there's this premise that's becoming more and more real in my life that we cannot heal from that which we ignore. Choosing to ignore something does not bring about healing. The first time I heard this concept was from an author named Jamar Tisby who would wrote this book called The Color of Compromise. It's all about the Christian community moving through racism, acknowledging it, and moving through, uh, moving through racism to find a, uh, racial healing and righteousness again. And the solution that he shares on this is not, the solution is not being post-racial. It's not being colorblind, like that actually is not going to bring about healing that we need to have within the fractured community that we live in and how the church has actually perpetuated much of the racial hurt that we've, that we've, uh, that we've given uh, communities of color. What he's saying is your goal is, is not to be colorblind, but actually to see, to see exactly the pain and the trauma of racism and supremacy has called 
that has caused even within the church, especially within Christians. And so we actually need, like that serpent on that pole, we need to spend time in actually taking a look at it so that we might find healing. And I believe the same thing can be said of the sorrow and anxiety that we have in our own lives that's within us. Our healing from our anxiety and our depression, our sorrow, is not discovered by simply faking it or by living by Bob Newhart's uh, you know, instructions of stopping it, just stop having our, our anxiety. We need to be people who are willing to look at it, to look at what it is, where it's come from, and the thing that's driving it. Even right now, I just want, to have, I want you to have a second now to consider where in your life is there anxiety, sorrow, and loss? Just take a moment, have your own analysis of yourself what is the source of your own anxiety, sorrow, and loss? Rather than the anxiety being the problem, what if that anxiety or that sorrow is trying to teach you something? What if it's making a bid for your attention to stay there and take a deeper look? This takes some work, and oftentimes it takes some counseling, but oftentimes the sources of anxiety and sorrow are places that are longing to be healed if we're willing to go there. I've heard it said that God often comes to us disguised as our life. That this is how God meets with us, is in the context of our life. God does not merely meet us in the sacred moments and places, not only in the moments of bliss and delight, but God also meets with us in the tragedies of our lives. And for us to move through our anxiety to gratitude, we must be willing to sit with it and see what it truly is, to sit with it long enough that maybe healing can spring up as well. I visited with a friend this week named Jenna St. David. She's a wonderful friend. Um, she's a licensed therapist, and she's a professor at the Seminary of the Southwest, right around the corner. And she wrote this great book called The Brain and the Spirit. <clears throat> For people who are really interested with how the brain works around our spiritual life, you might be interested in her book that she just published. Um, but I asked her about the interplay between anxiety and gratitude for the sermon this week. I was desperate for material people. And uh, her comments actually really, really stayed with me. Uh, we, she, in her point of view, we often think about gratitude and anxiety as opposite forces, kind of like a tug of war that are pulling you away in two very different directions. And there's always this constant tension between the two. But her point was, she said, that's not how it works. Jenna shared that we can't our neurobiological self cannot feel gratitude for the goodness in our lives if we aren't also willing to allow ourselves to fully grieve that which has been damaged and shattered. We cannot selectively numb ourselves, is what her point was, from the joy of our life. As, I'm sorry, we can't numb ourselves from the anxiety and the suffering of our life without also numbing ourselves from the joy as well. So instead of framing our anxiety as opposing forces against gratitude, what if we actually consider that grief and gratitude are companions? Companions in our journey towards healing and wholeness. That they're a part of the human experience. And what if we allow ourselves to fully embrace our emotional reality so that we can move towards deeper joy and gratitude in our life? And if this is true, Many of us might have experienced shallowness in our joy because we have been willing to experience the depth of our own anxiety and suffering. 
Maybe we haven't experienced the depth of God's joy that God wants to put in us unless we are willing to be honest about the pain that we've gone through. I thought this was such a profound revelation, guys. I was like sitting with it. I was amazed by it. And then I remembered this is the entire premise to the movie Inside Out by Pixar. <laughs> like I was like, of course, the best things in life are being taught to us by Pixar. Uh, if you guys remember, spoiler alert, sorry, cover their ears if you don't want to hear this, but do you remember the resolution of the whole plot line? Like it was building towards this moment. What was the culmination of the movie? Well, this young girl's world was falling apart because joy was dominating her. It was defending and protecting her, but then all of a sudden, joy realized the only way to keep this child whole is to bring sadness. And so joy grabbed sadness's hands and they began to hold the same memories together. And this young girl began to flourish again. This requires us to embrace and understand that oftentimes in the spiritual life, we have to be comfortable with paradoxes. The paradoxes are a part of our life. And people define paradox as this, the ability to hold two seemingly opposite realities at the same time. That's what a paradox is. And the spiritual life is full of paradoxes. Even our Christian understanding about how life works, what God is, it, it's full of paradoxes. Just take a notice of this. Was Jesus human or God? Is Jesus' kingdom established now or is it waiting for us in heaven? Am I directed in my life by the Spirit or by my selfish desires? Is God sovereign in directing our world or do we have free will to choose? Is God even one or is God three? And a skeptic to, could look at all those paradoxes and go, see, what, you've put, what you put together is a house of cards. It's fragile. So which one is it? And our response is, it's both. Yes, that's our response. Yes. Our shared faith is one of beautiful and mysterious paradoxes. And we find the paradox of pain and power, especially in the scripture reading that we had today, Paul's letter to the church of Corinth. Paul was writing to a community very different from us because they were experiencing persecutions and hardships in extreme ways. Um, and Paul wanted to write to them to give them hope in the midst of their suffering. That is common to us as well because we have suffering as well. But he begins to talk about the power of the spirit within us. And I want you to listen to all the paradoxical truths that Paul is trying to convey. He says, he wrote, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Full of paradoxes, right? The promise that Paul is trying to share, though, to give them hope is not that life is going to be great, we're on the up and right, the church is now growing and moving, and we're going to be in power one day. No, what Paul is trying to do is give them hope by saying, we actually are hard-pressed, we actually are perplexed and persecuted, we are struck down, we actually carry in us the death of Jesus, 
That sounds really, really, really bleak. It sounds like the worst news to give someone who are peop- these people who are trying to make it through their days. But what Paul knows is that there's a deeper truth, that we hold these experiences in one hand so that with the other we can hold the paradoxical hope of Christ, that though we are persecuted, we will never be abandoned. Though we are struck down, it can, it, we, we won't be uh, destroyed. Though we are perplexed, we will never be in despair. Though we are persecuted, we will never, never be left alone. We carry around with, in, our li- in our bodies the wounded and sacrificial Savior so that the life of Je- Jesus could be revealed in us. We see that we can't have one without the other. Gratitude isn't released by faking it till we make it. It's not released by blowing sunshine at our, at our pain. Or the word picture I had with my week was, it's, we can't get our depression, wait for our depression to fall asleep and get one of those crocheted pillows with a scripture verse and just smother it, right? We can't like go mobster on that. Like we have, we can't, that's not the approach in our life. Instead, deep abiding gratitude only comes from a ruthless honesty with God. That takes courage, persistence, probably a loving community that's given you permission to do that. It takes uh, time. It also takes a lot of hope. Yet this is what we have been called to. We take our full selves to Christ's healing presence. And when we've been willing to do that, when we've been willing to do that, it might sound odd, but then we get to practice gratitude. It might be weird to say practice gratitude because it doesn't really sound like a practice. It feels like gratitude is something else. But I feel like gratitude is, is much of a practice as it is an emotion or a feeling. Gratitude is uh, a practice because we have to learn to foster gratitude. We have to learn how to grow it, to harness it. And what we know about brain mapping, what we know about our neurobiology now is that things that are frightening, things that are anxiety producing is like Velcro in our mind. Yet gratitude, it's kind of like cellophane. It just slips away. It's real. It's there, but it slips away. This is why we need to learn to practice it. This is why we need to learn to harness it. What we also know about gratitude is that when we do experience it, though, it really changes how we think and how we feel. When we intentionally consider that which we're grateful for, our brains literally change. Serotonin and dopamine are released. These are things that change our mood. But also, what happens when we continue to practice it, uh, thought patterns begin to strengthen neuroplasticity begins to change, and we actually are strengthening these roadways towards gratitude, and our minds are literally transformed. They are rewired, and gratitude brings about more gratitude, and we begin to see and remember all the gifts in our life, while also we can hold the anxiety that we are also feeling. A worn-out mantra in my life is this phrase, what you focus on determines what you miss. It's a mantra in my life because I need to remember that. You know that this is the case. We decide, whenever you decide what you want to purchase, you immediately begin to see it everywhere in our society, right? Oh, I wonder about a Tesla. Could I get a Tesla? And you see Teslas everywhere. Or that new handbag or the new 
shoes or whatever. Whatever you focus on determines what you miss. You know, for me personally, I could focus on the Aggie football season and the losing streak that we haven't had since 1972 and how we've wasted the greatest recruiting class in college football history, the $95 million that we're paying our coach right now. Or I could remember our halftime show, you know? The Aggie band's never lost a halftime, right? What we focus on determines what we miss. When we, as people, when we've done the honest assessment of our emotional health, that honesty then can be utilized to focus on all that which we have been grateful for. We can direct our attention to the many gifts in our presence, the gifts of God, the gifts of just being alive. It's not that we are denying the anxiety and the stress, but we ensure that we also place our attention on every good gift that's subtly surrounding our lives. Like who here has actually made a gratitude list? I know some people in our community do that. It's like this, like a daily practice where you write down a gratitude, what you're grateful for. And I believe why this is so powerful is it begins to open up your eyes more and more. And you begin to realize, I can fill up a list every day for gifts big and small in my life. You're learning to focus on the right thing. And we begin to notice that gratitude begets gratitude. Back to my complicated relationship with Philippians 4.6. Remember this? Let's go to that. Okay, so this verse and what it's been in my life has been a subtle attack on anxiety and sadness and sorrow and a push towards prayer and petition and thanksgiving, being more and more thankful. What I didn't really see until this week and what I didn't remember is what precedes this verse. And what is that? The Lord is near. The Lord is near. What if the focus of this verse is not like shaming people for having anxiety, but it's actually putting it in the context that whatever you're feeling, just remember the Lord is near. Like God is like really close to you. Like just remember and focus focus on the truth that God is drawing near to you while you're experiencing anxiety, while you're experiencing sorrow, that the Lord is near. And let that frame every emotional reality that you have. Like if what you focus determines what you miss, focus also on the fact that God is near you and how that can form our relationship to our anxiety. Find comfort. The Lord is near. Bring all of your anxiety and fear to God because God is near. Go to God in prayer and petition because God is near. And don't forget to be thankful for God is with you in the midst of it all. And the peace of God wants to guard your hearts and your minds because God is near. So as we approach Thanksgiving this year, may we bring our anxiety and our sorrow and our disappointments to the light of Christ who wants to meet us with our wounds and wants to meet our wounds with his. And may our eyes be open to all the gifts that Christ has lavished upon us, but no greater gift than this, that God is near each and every one of you. We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about The Vine, get connected to our community, or contribute financially to The Vine's ministry, go to our website at thevineaustin.org.